Welcome to the No More Risk Better Accredit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm your host, Zach Griffiths, Head of Investment Grade and Macro Strategy. And joining me today is Cedric Chihab, our Global Head of Country Risk at BMI. Cedric, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on the podcast. Yes, looking forward to a great discussion. So we are going to cover all three things macro from a global perspective, and, and we've got really the perfect guest for that in Cedric. So Cedric, I kind of want to just start with your global view of the world, how you're thinking about global growth from a developed market and emerging market perspective, and just kind of your outlook for 2024. Yeah, sure. From a global perspective, our view is that the global economy is going to slow down in 2024. You have tight monetary policy and less support of fiscal policies. It's going to act a bit of a drag. But I think two things to note. One, it's not a huge slowdown. And two, there's going to be quite a bit of a divergence between developed markets and emerging markets. So in terms of developed markets, we expect a slowdown or sluggish growth. U.S. is going to slow. European economies are going to slow mostly. Germany is going to buck the trend a little bit, but, but still remain quite sluggish. EMs will hold up much better, even as we think China will slow from about 5.2% last year to 4.7% this year. And, you know, this is because you have some emerging markets which are going to accelerate in terms of the growth. So the Middle East, a little bit here and there, and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. I think the important thing to remember is that emerging markets have some real positive structural tailwinds still, which is helping to drive their growth, productivity growth as well. And if you look at the data coming out of December and uh, January, we see that general momentum in the emerging markets and in some developed markets as well. We can talk about that uh, a bit later. Momentum seems to be holding up. And that's really the carryover effect from fiscal policy, uh, which has helped to kind of blunt some of that monetary policy tightening globally. And I think more recently, the slight easing of financial conditions since late year, uh, late last year uh, will also help. Now, I think a few other things maybe to think about is the uncertainty that we have for this year, and that's going to dominate the headlines. So the slowdown in growth is, you know, the magnitude is still a little bit uncertain. Uh, it's a bit uncertain. You also have a bit of monetary policy uncertainty as to when central banks will start cutting. And then, of course, we have election uncertainty, given that a very high number of countries are, are going to the polls. Great. Thanks, Cedric. That's certainly helpful kind of framing up the, the global discussion. And I, and I think the monetary policy uncertainty is top of mind, considering we are recording this on February 1st. We had a rate decision from the Bank of England this morning and the Fed yesterday. Maybe start with the Fed and give us your key takeaways from what you read in the policy statement and heard from Chairman Powell's press conference yesterday. From a rate perspective, we've been saying that we think the Fed will probably start cutting in June. We've held that view for a while. So around mid-year with about 100 basis points for the full year, 
we thought March was a little bit too soon. And what we saw was the markets no longer pricing that in. And actually, the Fed came out and basically threw cold water on that idea after their January meeting, which happened yesterday. And I think you know growth is strong uh, and, and above trend. Inflation is coming down, but still a little bit high, I would say. So we think really the path of least resistance is for the Fed to just wait a bit and see how things pan out, really, rather than jumping the gun. Ultimately, the Fed has space to wait. And there are a few other things to consider. Like, so what is the Fed's reaction function to the Red Sea supply chain shocks, right? 28% of container cargo goes through, goes through there. So it's a bit unclear. And we've seen previous econometric exercises from the IMF and the San Francisco Fed basically they say that supply chain issues can have inflationary impacts over uh, several months. So it's interesting that the Fed didn't mention it really, uh, but it is something that we're thinking about. Now, of course, this hits Europe more than the US, but it does bleed over into global rates, I would say, in terms of the, the cost of, of shipping. And I think slightly less relevant perhaps, but you know, think about a slightly weaker U.S. dollar, that could lead to a little bit of inflationary pressures, which are imported. So I don't think the Fed really wants to cut prematurely and get egg on their face. You know, that could be a credibility issue. The other thing is that growth has held up, right? Labor market's quite tight. Consumers are feeling okay. Lastly, the easing of financial conditions that that have happened since late October, November, is actually doing a lot of the work for the Fed in terms of easing. And we see this in the treasury market, various financial conditions, indices, and, uh, and mortgage rates. So, you know, I think they just want to keep a premium on that optionality for now. Optionality has been the name of the game in terms of the communication from major central banks. Recently, we had been in the camp that maybe the Fed could begin cutting in March. That was a view that we held beginning in October. And so we were a bit ahead of the move, but shifted to a more tactically a cautious approach to markets in general, highlighting that this economic activity data that's been stronger than expected reduced our confidence that the Fed could ultimately move in March. And as you stated, Chairman Powell was almost surprisingly direct in throwing cold water on that. And I do think a, a big part of that is growth has been strong, as as you noted, in the U.S. And that's something that probably reduces the urgency in terms of cutting the policy rate, even though inflation is coming down quite a bit, even unit labor costs today, employment costs index yesterday. So definitely a lot to, to balance in terms of the U.S. economy. And I know you kind of commented that on that a little bit so far, but take us through in a little bit more detail how you see U.S. growth evolving throughout 2024 and, and what's driving the growth that you expect this year. If you think about growth, what's interesting is that the GDP figures showed that the economy grew by 3.3% in the final quarter. Not only was that well above expectations, but is quite above trend as well. And it follows on from a pretty spectacular the previous quarter before, right? And I think that's impressive in terms of how much momentum the U.S. economy has. And that just, you know, puts the Fed in, in, a, in a situation where they have more, more time to think. And I think that's, that's great for them. Nonetheless, we do think that the U.S. economy will slow over the coming quarters um, to about you know, 1.4%, 1.6% for the full year. We think there's some upside risks, um, especially if stronger than expected momentum really continues into Q1 as that has a carryover effect and, and will lift the full year picture, really. And there are several drivers of that growth, really. So from a bigger picture perspective, there's a lot of carryover from the fiscal policy uh, that's feeding through to both government consumption as well as private consumption. So consumers still have quite a, quite a bit of excess savings, although they've drawn them down quite a bit, they still have some. And, and this has really helped to blunt the impact of monetary tightening. Although we think that that will fade over time, 
And from a shorter term perspective, we can see in the numbers that consumption's been holding up quite well, in part because of those excess savings, but also the decline in inflation, the decline in gas prices and interest rate costs have also helped that consumer side of the story. And we're also seeing government spending, which added to, to growth a little bit, and business investments also contributed, though it didn't add that much. I think the big upside surprise came from the consumer side, really, and business inventories, which were expected to act as a drag on growth, but, but didn't in the end. It's surprising just how strong growth has been. Coming off of you know 5% in, in Q3, I, we had certainly anticipated a more acute slowdown. And it seems like even so long past when these fiscal policies were initially enacted in response to COVID, it does seem like there's just a ton of lingering tailwind from just how robust the fiscal and monetary response was to COVID. And I think that's one of the things that we've discussed with our, our banks analysts. When does the consumer slow down? Is it student loan payments restarting? Is it this sapping of excess savings? And he's still relatively bullish. And, and it does seem like you know a slowdown of some degree has to be imminent from the pace that we saw in the second half of last year. But it'll certainly be interesting to see exactly how that evolves. I know we've kind of gone through your your growth outlook, how you're thinking about the recent news out of the Fed. How does this all factor into what you're thinking about for the US economy from a longer run perspective? Over the short term, so you know it's surprising to the upside and uh, we think it's going to slow down. But over the long term, I think one thing to consider is is the productivity story and productivity growth. I personally feel as if it's not something that people are talking about enough, just because since the pandemic hit, we've had three major drivers of productivity, which would support growth over the long term. So for example, as the pandemic hit, most most businesses and, and companies were, were forced to go digital, not only in terms of their, their platform strategy or access to their clients, but also we went digital and, and labor went digital to a degree. So now companies can access labor from around the world at potentially you know, much cheaper costs. Let's say if you're based out in the US, you could hire countries like Turkey, some great programmers or in Poland. The second one, which is quite interesting and somewhat related is that during the pandemic, we saw pretty large labor shortages. And so that saw a lot of companies look for either labor in, in other countries, like I just mentioned, or substitutes such as robotics. And so there's a huge amount of investment in robotics and robotics provide an incredibly good, efficient function um, and, and can help boost productivity as well. And then the third one is that we've only just scratched the surface of AI. So together, these drivers will ultimately have a pretty large impact on productivity and could lift trend growth. Currently, the estimates are about one and a half to two and a half percent, perhaps, to, to even higher, right? Two and a half plus. And if you think about it on a compounded basis over many years, that's a lot of growth and you know, added value to, to the U.S. economy. So in that sense, I think uh, from a global perspective, you know, I think we can be entering a, a, an era where we can leverage that productivity growth a bit more. And particularly the U.S., which you know, has been at the front of digital and digitization, has been at the front, forefront of robotics in many cases, and ChatGPT came out of the U.S. Yeah, that's certainly huge. And we're really, like you said, just scratching the surface there. Taking things in a little bit different direction with respect to this productivity growth consideration, do you think that's factoring into the Fed's preference for patience at this time, even though we are seeing monetary policy in real terms, perhaps at the most restrictive it's been in the past several decades? You know, I feel like the estimates of R-Star that are published by the New York Fed and others are, are still quite low. And 
there's a ton of research out there noting that you can't really know our star in real time. But do you think that's top of mind for central banks and something maybe the market is not paying enough attention to when considering where we go from here? So as you mentioned, there are a lot of unknowns in, in the debate around our star. And I think the Fed is probably thinking about it. But I don't think it's conducting short-term policy decisions based on it, just because it's just so hard to measure. And also the question of productivity is one that is very volatile over the short term in terms of how we capture the data, but very clear over the long term. So it's one of those things that probably the Fed looks at, but doesn't put too much weighting on over the short term, just because it's probably much more focused on, on inflation growth and employment dynamics right over the short term, as well as trying to understand how, they, how, how they're able to navigate the messaging in a way which is very clear and transparent in order to ensure the credibility and the, the forward guidance. Because if, if you start, let's say, talking a lot more about productivity, which is very hard to measure and all up, and, you know, very volatile as a, as a data point, then I think that's going to potentially create more uncertainty for markets. Yeah, we certainly don't need more uncertainty in these markets today, I'd say. And I think that's a perfect segue to another key topic that we wanted to get your views on. There's a ton of elections throughout the globe this year. And I think that's going to be a, a, certainly a market mover here in the U.S., but globally. So give us some of your views. What key elections are, are you focused on and think could have the largest implications for financial markets in 2024 or the global economy, either or? I'm, I'm sure the, the answer is going to be similar for, for both considerations. Yeah, so the biggest one for sure is the U.S. But before we just talk about the U.S., I just want to talk kind of more broadly about the elections. So as you mentioned, big topic, major year for elections and already kicked off, right? Taiwan on the 13th of January, third consecutive win by the DPP, for example. Now, there are a lot of elections this year, and that could lead to quite a bit of uncertainty. But I think an interesting way to think about the elections is even if the party in power changes, the question we ask on our side always is, will this lead to broad policy continuity or not? Because if you have the opposition come in, but most of their policies are quite similar, they agree on a lot of things, just they disagree on a few things, then for investors, that doesn't cause that much uncertainty. And when we look at it through this through that lens, then most of the elections this year, we either expect the incumbent to be reelected, or we do expect broad policy continuity, which makes that election schedule a little bit less scary. So, for example, elections in Indonesia, India, Mexico, and South Africa, to name a few emerging markets, we expect broad policy continuity, and in most cases, the sitting president or PM to remain in power, for example. But where there are changes, I think there's general consensus around the broad direction of policy. Now, it is important to keep a close eye on those elections, given that you might have some exogenous or domestic economic shock, which could potentially change the balance of risks for the election and also could potentially you know, galvanize a particular party a bit more than the other. But generally speaking, we're comfortable with our view for broad policy continuity, which helps to kind of mitigate some of that election uncertainty. That's helpful and actually consistent with our EM strategist Regis just came out with, with a view. He's, he'll still underperform on Indonesian bonds, but he highlighted that in that race, really either outcome is going to see broad policy continuation. So from that perspective and you know the fact that there's a little bit more of that out there, I think that probably takes some of the, the tail risk out of the market. But as you said, the U.S. is going to be huge in terms of implications for financial markets. And it does seem like the odds of a shift in control, at least in the White House, you know, just looking at the 
betting markets out there, it's, it seems like that is is a fairly likely outcome. So take us through your views on the election, you know, based on what we know now, there's a, a lot of time to pass, even economic data to come before that election. But how are you thinking about that election at this point? The assumption right now is that it's going to be a rerun between Biden and Trump. And currently, we just think it's a toss up at the moment. Just it's very hard to to see either Trump or Biden getting ahead. And there are pros and cons to to kind of betting on on each of the of the candidates. Right. So, you know, Biden is the is the incumbent. So he has a bit of an advantage from that perspective Uh, on Trump's side. However, he's polling much better in some of the swing states that Biden actually won in 2020. And that's dangerous for Biden. So, for example, Trump's ahead in Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Ohio and Pennsylvania. That's quite a lot to be quite a lot of states to be ahead of in terms of the polls. So it's pretty much a toss up at this point. But there are a few things which I think are quite interesting and I'd like to highlight. The fact that Biden is or has been polling so poorly, despite strong growth and a tight labor market, suggests that everyday Americans are still feeling the pain from that inflation shock and don't really feel as if they're in a strong economy. We're looking at the GDP numbers and you're like, wow, this is really strong. People should be very happy. And it doesn't feel like that's the case or people don't think that Biden has has gotten them to a place where they feel economically safe or comfortable. I think that this ultimately implies some asymmetry in how they might be thinking about their voting intentions, which means that let's say you get an improvement in the economy um, or it stays pretty steady, like that'll help Biden a bit. But because it's asymmetric, perhaps a slowdown might actually hurt him a lot, right? So the improvement in growth doesn't help Biden that much, but helps him a little bit, but a slowdown really hurts him. Now, this might be changing a little bit if you look at the data a bit more closely. So we saw inflation coming down a bit more, gas prices coming down, and easier financial conditions. And that could really help boost consumer confidence. And if you look at the latest UOM consumer uh, sentiment surveys, they actually popped, right? And that could be positive if these trends continue. So if, let's say, inflation remains low, labor market remains tight, maybe some voters become a little bit more comfortable with kind of where the economy is, and they think things are feel a little bit better. Let's not rock the boat. Let's just vote for continuity rather than a big change. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Um, it's, it's very, very difficult at this moment to, to have a strong view. I think there's certain advantages that Trump has, certain advantages that Biden has. I think ultimately one can agree that not only is there uncertainty, but that high degree of political polarization within the economy and within the, the country makes the whole policy making agenda and implementation so much more difficult and, and creates a little bit of policy risk, actually. I agree. And I think one of the things that has come up a fair bit in our discussions is just thinking about the deficit in the U.S. Is there an outcome in this election where it actually improves at all? And I haven't had a chance to dig into this perhaps as much as I'd like in terms of the policy agenda that former President Trump could push, but it kind of gets to this concern about deficits, whether or not they're sustainable, and, and also kind of what it means for inflation from a longer run perspective. And so maybe take us through how you're thinking about risks associated with this election and how it could affect inflation from a longer run perspective, or just how you're thinking about the developments over the past couple of years and what that could mean from a long-term inflation perspective going forward. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. So if you think back a few a few years ago, right, when inflation was 
was high and, and rising. If you spoke to anybody to say, oh, yeah, inflation's not coming back to target, it's, it's going to stay above target for many years. Now, fast forward to today, and mo- I think the consensus view is that most central banks are going to hit their inflation targets by the end of this year or at some point. I think the, the mood has shifted quite, quite dramatically. And we've always been in the camp that inflation might come in a little bit higher than, than pre, pre-pandemic levels, but not that much higher. And it would be close to central bank of inflation targets, which, which would leave them comfortable enough to enact policy normally. But I think the, the question around fiscal deficits and inflation is really important because even though we think that inflation comes back to target and stays around there, the longer term tail risk is that actually if there's no bipartisan support to really rein in the deficit, then that could potentially lead to uh, longer term inflationary pressures and, and, uh, and long term inflation expectations. Now, somewhat ironically, about 100 years ago to the year, pretty much, Europe was experiencing significant inflation. So you had hyperinflation in Germany and in Poland and really high inflation in countries like France. Now, of course, the reasons for inflation back there were very different, you know, coming out of the Second World War, uh, central banks weren't as, as independent, of course, and you had large fiscal deficits that were financed directly by the central bank. But I think what's interesting is that ultimately those policy choices from a century ago were the result of domestic and external political constraints. So my point is, we have to be mindful of understanding those competing forces around the distribution of burden around income and taxes, because they could lead to longer term policy decisions, which then lead to continued fiscal deficits and potential for you know fiscal slippage and inflation expectations. And this is particularly important if there is an erosion of fiscal rules or central bank independence, because then it becomes much more of a slippery slope. And I'm just saying this hypothetically, because you know we know central bank independence is is very much uh, focused on in today's world, with many economies really putting a lot of focus to shield themselves from political influence, etc. But we have seen these issues arise in places like Argentina and Turkey in recent years, where you've had much weaker central bank independence and a very high levels of inflation. So it's not something that I'm very worried about right now, but from a historical perspective, it's something I like to think about and keep an eye out for. I think anytime you can bring in a lesson from a century ago, that is the mark of a great podcast and a great discussion. So thank you, Cedric, for coming on the podcast. I thought this was great, covered a lot of topics. We'd love to have you back on to maybe dig into some of these in more detail in the future. So that is Cedric Chehab, our global head of country risk at BMI. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Zach. And thank you all for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on No More Risk Better. Credit sites disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is credit sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by credit sites or its affiliates. 